This is a moral call right here. This is not about politics. This is about morality. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. I'm a physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Benjamin Day. And I am Jillian Mason. And this is Medicare for All, the podcast for everybody who needs health care. This is one of my favorite episodes that we have on a somewhat recurring basis, which is our mm. mailbag episodes. This is the Superfans edition. Jillian wanted to call it the OnlyFans edition, near miss, near miss. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be a separate episode when we get George Santos as our guest. <laughs> Thank you for acknowledging that, though. That's important. Yeah. Like, I no longer feel like I've been silenced. My creativity, yeah. my we'll, we'll do with it. OnlyFans. <laughs> we'll get to it. <laughs> um, so it is that time again. Time for the mailbag up. So we, so we reached out to our whole audience and all of our supporters to find, you know, their pressing questions that are on their minds. Or uh, we would have if Jillian hadn't been too busy eating turkey to email our whole list. Very understandable. I mean, we have to have our priorities in place here. So instead, Jillian reached out personally to some of our super fans, the folks who are kind of most in contact with us about watching the podcast and following along to find out what they wanted to hear from us. And here we are with the questions about everything from Ronald Reagan to elder care to dinner table conversation with some of our favorite stands. And you had to explain what a stan is to me. Wow, we're, we're showing for full disclosure in this episode. I know, I know. Well, I feel like I, I'm. I feel like I really let us down on the stan front. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So I did have to explain to Ben what a stan is, but to all of our favorite stans, we stan you right back. So there. And these are stalker fans for the losers like me who have never never heard the term originated as a stalker fan but now a stand is kind of a point of a pride you know like a beyonce stand would be like a member of the beehive a taylor swift fan I would see. be like a stand would be like a, a swifty a medicare for all podcast stand would be like a we'll work on that oh, yeah we'll, we'll workshop that, that we'll workshop that yeah. maybe yeah. an only fan would that be the only fan <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah so just to be clear we do have some super fans here who were not polled for this basically the super fans who were polled were ones whose contact information i had in my phone and could text on a saturday afternoon Mm-hmm. So, very scientific polling here. The privileged few. The privileged <laughs> few. If you want to get into the future super fan episode, you're going to have to cozy up to Jillian, get to know her, send her some nice things. Hey, you know. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. So, should we get to some questions Let's from our it. super fans? I can't wait. I can't wait. Okay. And I can't wait to tell you something some, about our, some of our super fans who are really kind of super badass in their own right. And case in point is my dear friend, Liam Meyer, who listens to every episode of our podcast. He is fabulous. Liam is in Massachusetts. Um, he's an adjunct professor at Boston University. He was active in the union drive there. And he's just super fabulous. And he right now is dealing with, <laughs> well, let me see if you can guess what he's dealing with right now. Liam says, 
maybe discuss this on your podcast. And then he puts a link to a story in the New York Times about long-term Which uh, took both of us like an hour to read. Yeah. Right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So he says, you could also talk about elder care and how wildly fucked up it is. One especially galling bit is how Medicaid is basically just built to ignore cognitive stuff. Almost all metrics are about physical health. So like if someone's grandpa could theoretically cook and shower themselves, i.e. he can stand up and walk, he still has hands. Medicaid says it's all good, even if grandpa doesn't know where the shower is, leaves his stove on all the time and continually eats spoiled food. You know, I feel like, Ben, this is something that comes up more and more with like people who are in our peer group, right? As we're taking care of our parents who are getting a little bit older, the question of elder care is becoming something that I think is more and more relevant to the rest of us. I am so sorry to Liam's grandpa, but I'm glad he has his hands on. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know exactly what he's dealing with, but it sounds like something up that alley. I think um, I think that's, I think that <laughs> the grandpa is, is a hypothetical character, but yeah. Uh, yeah, solidarity to Liam dealing with elder care issues. <laughs> yes. All right. So, well, first of all, elder care, what does that even mean? As far as I understand, elder care is like a mushing together of all sorts of care services for older folks, whether that's long-term care or medical care or everything else. But anyway, we obviously long-term care, I think, is the biggest one that's discussed in the article. And that's something we've talked a lot about on the program, long-term care. And uh, long-term care is just supremely fucked up, as we all know. Uh, That's been kind of our focus for many, many years. And it's not only older folks who who need long-term care. Obviously, it's anyone who has kind of a physical or mental disability that they need some sort of help with day-to-day living. But it does obviously become more likely as you age that you're going to need it. And most of us will need long-term care eventually at some point in our lives. Mm -hmm. So I won't rehash our whole long-term care episode here. But what is wrong with the U.S. long-term care system? Well, we don't have one. It is probably <laughs> the, the biggest problem. Very, it's an issue. Yeah, so uh, very few people are privately insured to get long-term care if they ever need it. So the uh, vast majority of people need to rely on Medicaid to get long-term care services. But in order to qualify for Medicaid, you basically have to be poor or to become poor, to make yourself poor, to qualify one of the stories that hit me the hardest in my early days at Healthcare Now was um, in the state of New York, the state legislature was doing kind of a listening tour around the state on access to healthcare. And there was a police detective, a retired New York police detective, who was talking about all of the, uh, part of his job was to investigate deaths, especially non-homicide deaths. And he was talking about how many, how many deaths that he had had to investigate from folks who had committed suicide because they needed long-term care. But to access long-term care, they would have to make their family poor. They would have to basically spend down all of their family assets. Um, And he he gave one particular example about a guy who his family owned a farm. And in order for him to qualify for long-term care services for Medicaid, they would basically have to literally sell the farm Um, And it would obviously impact not just him, but his spouse and his children and his grandchildren. So instead... And that, like, yeah, that future legacy. I mean, the reason that you, like, you know, buy a piece of property is to pass it on eventually, right? It becomes part of your, quote-unquote, generational wealth, right? Yeah, and that is, you can see why someone might commit suicide to protect their family's wealth um, and to just protect the future of their kids who rely on on this farm. But apparently this was common and enough reason for suicide that this police detective was seeing it over and over and over again, which is just 
I can't get that one out of my head. But uh, you know, and the last thing that we might mention here in, in the, that context is just the what's called the institutional bias, which is that Medicaid will often pay for long-term care in an institutional setting, like a nursing home, but will not pay for long-term care in the home, which is both cheaper and better for your quality of life. So it drives people into these institutional settings, which can really degrade your quality of life. So yeah, yeah. yeah so no, wait, say that again for the people in the back, though. Home care, taking care of people in their homes, is actually cheaper and better for people's health. Right? I know, shocking. Who would have Who would have thought of it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yes, solidarity, Liam. The L, uh, you know, things systems set up for elder care and long term care are terrible, and and in particular those kind of bizarre restrictions, right? Like how we decide who gets care and who deserves care and who needs care, right? Those systems are all super fucked up as well. Yeah, exactly. And I, I apologize. I apparently had the wrong microphone on, so I might have been a little tinny at the start of this one. But Ooh, hopefully, you sound- hopefully I'm back on microphone here. Your mellifluous voice is uh, sounding much better now. All right. Excellent. So we're back to, I think, our next uh, major question. And you all should check out our long-term care episode. I'm sure we will have more to come in the future. One of our big wins has been adding better long-term care coverage to both Medicare for All bills, especially the Senate bill. Um, so we've really been fighting for that. All right. So our next question is from Jerry Katz from the no, Minnesota. Jerry. And Jerry is also a kind of one of our crucial volunteers on the podcast. She writes up all of the show notes for every single podcast and does an amazing job at it. Um, and Jerry had a series of questions. Oh, wait, but also she's an amazing labor leader. And I think we should mention yes. that too. Yes. Yeah. At the Minnesota Nurses Association. So Jerry had a few questions. We're going to get to most of them here, but I'm going to start with the first one, which is a great one. Have you listened to the Ronald Reagan speaks out about socialized medicine LP? Why has the American Medical Association, the AMA, historically opposed single payer? And it might even take an explanation to connect those two things together a Ronald Reagan LP and the American Medical Association. Yes, yes. Okay, but Jerry, I, I girl, I got to thank you because you gave me some of the funnest listening of my day yesterday. I did listen to the Ronald Reagan Speaks Out About Socialized Medicine LP last night as I prepared for Giving Tuesday. And it was Giving Tuesday Eve last night, Ben. We'll, we'll have more about that later. But so anyway, for those of you who have not listened to this, I like thoroughly recommend it. There's just something so just like corny and hilarious about it, but it's, uh, I mean, it's also insidious and deeply terrifying. So, you know, I like that combo. So Ron Reagan, 1961, right? So this is before Medicare passed in 1965. What he's talking about is some of the laws were sort of like running up to the, you know, eventual Medicare proposal that won and that ended up getting passed. And, you know, it's been a pretty uh, popular program uh, since then. You may have heard of Medicare. So yeah, basically it's Ronald Reagan and he is talking about how healthcare reform will bring socialized medicine to the United States and how that is going to be like the poison pill that's going to slip socialism into our democratic country. He says that our country is a democracy. (laughs) That's another (laughs) thing. It's funny. But 
It's pretty amazing. And the thing that sticks out most to me about this is that he's like aware of what a ghoul he sounds like, but he just keeps going anyway, right? So like, he's like, okay, one of the traditional methods of imposing statism or socialism on people has been by way of medicine. Evidence for this, not even given. All right. It is very easy to disguise a medical program as a humanitarian project. In fact, most medical programs are humanitarian projects. No, it's disguised. It's disguised. (laughs) Disguised. Most people, and this is the part that really gets me, most people are a little reluctant to oppose anything that suggests medical care for people who can't possibly afford it. Not Ronnie Reagan. (laughs) But not me. Some people would feel awkward about telling you that your grandpa shouldn't have health care. But not me, Ronald Reagan. And he was, of course, emboldened. This is how we get to the AMA piece. He actually was paid off by the AMA, the American Medical Association, in, to deliver that speech. And they ended up promoting it all over the country. It was printed on an LP. So you could actually literally buy a record of Ronald Reagan talking about socialized medicine and really kissing ass for the AMA. So, yeah. I love the idea of playing propaganda on your record player. It's like, wait a minute, hold on. I'm going to pick it up by the edges. I don't want to scratch it. You put it down. You're going to lift the arm. You'll get the scratchy Ronnie Reagan voice. It's like, oh, we get some good propaganda here. I think they played these at, at coffee clutches around the country. So they had this uh, really uh, intriguing propaganda rollout. But yeah, so unfortunately, the American Medical Association is the second part of Jerry's question. Why is the AMA opposed single-payer health care? Good question. You would think this would be kind of a no-brainer for doctors. It would be unthinkable for doctors in any country that has universal health care to oppose public universal health care. You know, if anyone ever is thinking about like a drinking game to play while listening to our podcast, you would think would be a good phrase to drink Yeah, you would think. You would think. We say this at least (laughs) like 20 times. You would think doctors would be for health care. Alas, alas, it is not the case. Uh, The American Medical Association has a really long history of kind of opposing universal health care or even any health care reform that's good for patients. They opposed the 1948 Harry Truman plan for universal health care. They called it socialism. They used their own member dues to fund a political campaign against Truman's campaign. And part of this history, we've talked a little bit on this program, Jillian, about how basically the the Jim Crow South and segregation in the South was a big reason why it was hard to pass universal health care in the United States because of Southern Democrats wanting to continue propping up segregation. This is similar also for the American (laughs) Medical Association. So similar to the American Medical Association, also similar to 2023. You'll, you'll, right. So the American Medical Association, their local chapters, this is the physician's organization, were also racially segregated, at least in the South. So they had uh, white-only admissions policies in all the Southern states. And that actually led to a different organization of Black physicians forming the National Medical Association, which is still alive and well and active today. And so obviously the, the AMA was reflecting the positions of largely of white physicians for, uh, for this entire period, even even after desegregation passed, they kind of tried to prop up the capacity of their local chapters to exclude black physicians. Mm. And uh, this led them down the initial path of, of fighting for really terrible, horrible things during this entire period. But even after desegregation, they've done a pretty good job at continuing to fight for terrible, horrible things since then. 
They've never supported Medicare for all or universal health care at any stage. One of the reasons when we kind of look more at the modern day American Medical Association is that kind of like the AARP, which is the group for retirees that you mm. the benevolent retiree advocacy organization. No, they make most of their money actually selling you commercial products, including health insurance. Mm-hmm. And the AMA also makes a lot of their money off of selling products like coding, uh, insurance, and other products. They don't make it from their own membership. They only represent about 15% of doctors uh, these days. So they, I mean, you know. that's like, that's the punchline, right? right. Like yes. <laughs> AMA is supposed to have like, you know, they're, you know, the AMA, whenever they give quotes in the newspaper, they give quotes as if they speak for a whole world of physicians, all the physicians right, exactly. in America. Most of the doctors I know refuse to join their local AMA chapter in their states because they're disgusted by their policies. And they only join if there's some like looming vote for something to get them to do something better. And they'll be like, (laughs) okay, I'll join for this year just to vote against a bunch of horrible shit they're going to do. But I should say there's exciting organizing going on right now around medical students in particular. Uh, The medical students chapter of the AMA has introduced a resolution to basically block them from opposing Medicare for all. It doesn't like make have them support Medicare for all. We can hope for that down the road. But right now it would make them kind of neutral on the issue. So there should be a big fight around that coming up around the corner. So young people are awesome. Yeah, fuck yeah. Yeah, that's pretty great. All right. So yes. So long story short, Jerry AMA really blows. And uh, but I do appreciate being turned on to that uh, very exciting Ronald Reagan recording. Mm -hmm. Oh, and uh, there was another question that Jerry had. Her third question here is, do hospital mergers and acquisitions ever work out for the community? Could Medicare for all put the brakes on healthcare consolidation? Yeah, we started going down the rabbit hole on this one. And we were like, you know, we've been meaning to do a podcast, a fully dedicated podcast episode to this anyway, like hospital mergers. And I think we would just be doing a disservice by giving like a a flyby answer on this one. <laughs> so Jerry, stay tuned. We're going to do a whole episode, deep dive on this question of the impacts of hospital mergers and acquisitions. And I know the Minnesota nurses have to deal with this shit. Um, yeah. uh, so you, you probably have, uh, the best window on it of anyone. Maybe we'll have Jerry on as a guest. Oh my gosh. Yes. Listeners, please pressure, pressure <laughs> Jerry to be on as a guest. Yeah. Excellent. 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 And so, all right. Oh, uh, Jerry had one final question, which I think okay. is a goodie. In your opinion, who is the most evil healthcare profiteer of 2023? Gosh, you know, sometimes it's hard to narrow down the list, Jillian. Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, you could pick really any bad actor out of the the sandbag. Initially, I was going to go with United Health, which is being sued right now for using artificial intelligence bots to basically do all claims denials mm. instead of having a human actually look at uh, claims. And this is for specifically for Medicare Advantage plans and for seniors who have the privatized Medicare plans. But there's a lot of good reporting that's been done in the last year or two showing that basically all private insurance companies now use AI or even less intelligent, non-intelligent algorithms to do (laughs) instant denials of claims. Doctors spend less than five seconds on claims, choosing to deny them or not deny them. So they are not at all looking at your the medical necessity of your your claims um, or pre-approval requests. Um, It's all just being driven by a machine. So I'm going to blame AI. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I think um, 
and and you know it's actually it's companies like Google who are actually advertising their like medical AI systems as you know saving time and money for for healthcare corporations. So I think it's the whole AI industry coupled with the the, the profit motive in healthcare that's just like a terrible horrible marriage made in hell that we are only really seeing the worst of in 2023 now that AI is like a hot, hot topic. So. All right. All right. So, but we have others. So <laughs> AI. Yeah. I mean, okay. So actually the person that I'm most pissed off about regarding healthcare this particular year, for me, it was difficult to narrow it down to a particular year. Right. Um, <laughs> there, there are so many people who are persistently evil on healthcare that I'm like, like Joe Manchin. I don't know. Like he was evil last year too. And, and the year before that, and several years before <laughs> that as well. So anyway, I'm really, this year, I'm really, really pissed at Greg Abbott, who is the governor of the state where I live, who signed into law, basically a, a law that bans gender-affirming care for trans youth here in Texas. Lovely. So he is not technically- Really up. Yeah, really, seriously. <laughs> he was like, let me find a group of people who are least equipped to fight back, and mm -hmm. then I'll stomp on them. <laughs> and so, yeah, so it's just incredibly fucked up. So while he is not technically, uh, I think, a profiteer in that he's not actually, like, selling you health insurance, he is a political profiteer in that he is reaping huge political kudos from the far right for taking away health care from um, really one of the most vulnerable parts of our population here in Texas. So fuck you, Greg. Somehow that makes it worse when you don't get any money from it. That's like, <laughs> <laughs> like you could kind of understand it. If so you just <laughs> because you're an asshole, that's it. <laughs> really, it's just his personality. Yeah. Right, right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right, and I have to throw in one more. I know I already got a healthcare profiteer of 2023 in there. No, and, that's okay. And, you know, Jerry did ask the most evil, but I'm going to, we, we have to go with like most part B and part C. So I also want to give give a, a most evil profiteer a nod to Firma Pharma Firma. It's Firma. A, it, it's this is actually the umbrella lobbying organization for the pharmaceutical industry. Their Pharma. their their actual name is Pharma, <laughs> but without an A, so it's P H R M A, like a Firma. Pharma. What does that stand for again? It stands for the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America. Firma. Yeah, from Firma. Firma. Just drop the A from your mouth. So anyway, one of the only things that we got past fucking Joe Manchin, speaking of Joe Manchin, uh, was this provision that Medicare is allowed to negotiate 10 prescription uh, pr prices for 10 prescription drugs. Mm -hmm. um, and then the number grows up uh, over the years. We did another podcast about this recently. Well, Pharma is suing the Biden administration to try and block that from happening. So fuck you, Pharma, or however the hell you pronounce your name. <laughs> yeah, indeed. These people are terrible. Um, I just want to point out that just last week, actually, uh, one of their tax, there's an article that came out that one of their tax filings um, showed that Firma, the lobbying organization, this is like the ALEC of healthcare, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they basically gave $1.2 million to right-wing groups, right? So now they're funding a fake grassroots right-wing rebellion to try to repeal Biden's right to negotiate drug prices. Right. When literally no one supports your position, even conservatives, <laughs> you've got to, you've got to, You've got to do some serious astroturfing work to create the the fake impression of grassroots uh, interest. 
Oh, amazing. Amazing. All right. So all right, next up, another board member from Healthcare Those are Now. Those questions, Jerry, by the way. Yes, Thank those you. are awesome. Great questions. We have also a couple questions from Walter Sue, one of our favorite board members. Walter. Um, Walter is a former commissioner of health for Philadelphia, also former president of the American Public Health Association. He's like really important, right? Got some shine on him and he's, you know, very yeah. public, public health oriented physician. So he has a couple of questions that were, I really, these... These made us think, right? Mm -hmm. His first question was, who are your healthcare heroes and why? Uh, I just want to point out that when we first read this question, <laughs> Ben said, does anyone even have heroes anymore? I totally, I said it and I believed it. <laughs> that was like the most Gen X thing you've ever said in your life. Do we even have heroes? Well, so if we had to have heroes, which of course I as a Gen X are opposed as well. No, uh, I do. It's nice to have people who uh, who inspire us. And so I would say my healthcare heroes, I'm going to pick uh, Larry Kramer and the founders of ACT UP, which is the uh, AIDS advocacy organization that started through grassroots activism and a lot of artistic activism in the 80s in New York. You know, these were folks who were mostly part of the LGBTQ community. They were the ones who were, you know, they're, they're seeing people dying of AIDS every day in their community. And Reagan was still completely silent on the issue. And so they took these really militant and awesome grassroots tactics in order to get public attention. You might have seen pictures of the kissins that they held in New York, where gay people would literally just get together in public and kiss each other. Make a great action. We should do this more of this, right? <laughs> Difficult in the post Me Too era, but yes, very wholesome at the time. <laughs> they also created the silence equals death campaigns that use the pink triangle. It was a you know black poster, pink triangle, and it just said silence equals death on it. And that I think has been a powerful message that's really stuck with a lot of us in healthcare activism, which is that you know we're fighting for people who are dying, and if we're silent about it we know that those people are going to die and that no one's going to hear about it. And, um, and I think that that like pressure to take action for folks who are, uh, who are really on the verge of existence is, um, I think it's something that keeps me going. I don't know about you, Ben. Yeah. And we have a lot of kind of leading Medicare for Act activists who came out of that movement, actually, who came, mm -hmm. kind of came out of that world and, and learned activism and social movement building and have brought it into the Medicare for all movement as well. So I, I stand by my opposition to hero worship, but uh, forced to make a choice, I, I decided to go with the founders of the first community health centers in the country. Mm. Um, Jack Geiger is kind of the, the figure you, you'll hear mentioned the most. And if you have not seen it, there's this amazing, very short documentary that you can watch for free online. It's called Out in the Rural. Uh, you absolutely have to watch it. It's like... Um, it's mind altering stuff. And today's community health centers do not do the incredible radical shit that the original ones did. And you look at what they did and it's like, wow, this is really what healthcare should look like. Um, the first two community health centers made in the country, built in the country were right here. One of them was right here in Boston in the, on Columbia Point. And uh, the well, other over one- Over by your alma mater, right? Exactly, right near where UMass Boston is. Mm -hmm. um, the other one was in Mound Bayou in Mississippi, two very different communities. And yeah, you don't say. <laughs> I would say yes. Uh, both working class communities at the time, but you know, this was a Mount Bayou is a black agricultural rural uh, area, 
And the documentary is about the Mississippi one, not about the Boston one. Uh, but the premise of the first health centers was that it was kind of ridiculous for medical providers to just like treat patient symptoms when they showed up at the hospital or the clinic, when often those symptoms were like caused by poverty, by lack of work, by lack of money, by poor sanitation, by inadequate or no housing and by structural racism. So like in the words of Jack Geiger, he said, you know, quote, the idea that you stand around in whatever circumstances, laying hands on people in the traditional medical way, waiting until they're sick, curing them and then sending them back unchanged into an environment that overwhelmingly determines that they're going to get sick uh, doesn't make any sense. So that first Mississippi Health Center uh, created a workers co-op that allowed their patients to own and run their own agricultural operations, creating jobs and income and food. They had a massive sanitation program and installing toilets in patients' houses and communities. They ah. hand out prescriptions for food that their patients could cash in at local markets. Again, in the words of Jack Geiger, he said, quote, we have been able to do to enter and to do things under the general umbrella of health that would have been much harder to do if we'd said we were here for economic development or for social change per se. But they were just doing really radical shit that I wish more of our health centers today were kind of oriented towards that stuff. But mm, yeah, yeah. That was one of the things that um, that I remember talking about a lot when uh, I first came to work here at Healthcare yeah. Now. Um, we had a lot of conversations about philosophically about the importance of, of Medicare for all activism and single payer activism, universal healthcare activism, activism around healthcare in general is part of a larger health justice uh, movement that includes so many things beyond healthcare. And I think you're really good at reminding people about that. Prescriptions for food, though. I mean, oh, God, can you imagine? Come on. Yeah, please. So fucking cool. More of that, please. <laughs> oh, my God. So cool. So cool. All right. Um, great, great, great answers. Great, great heroes. Okay. So second question from Walter. How do we overcome the fear that the crappy plans we have would somehow be better than government-funded single-payer? Uh, this is a good question. Um, and I, I think Walter is kind of referring to the fear-mongering that you're going to lose your own health care. Yeah, lose uh, your doctor. Lose the health care that we have. And I think a lot of it is just kind of semantics. It's like, it, it's exactly what it is. It's fear-mongering. This is what if we get close to passing Medicare for all, this is going to be the shit that gets, you know, plastered in TV ads and sent out in mailers to everyone's house. It's going to like, you know, Medicare for all will take away the healthcare that you have. The truth of the matter is we know that no one really gives a shit about their health insurance. Company, hey. Right. No one likes their health insurer, but people are worried about losing the coverage, the healthcare coverage that they have. Mm -hmm. um, so we have to do a lot of inoculation work and a lot of our own messaging work, just clarifying that what Medicare for All does is it it, it gets rid of your health insurance corporation um, <laughs> and it replaces it with comprehensive health care that you can get from any provider that you want. To me, it's just a matter of reach and inoculation work, um, just like they talk about doing in, in union drives, for example. You, you know there's going to be a union busting campaign run by the bosses. You know, they're going to lie about what it involve, what it matters. You know, they're going to say there's going to be a union standing between you and, you know, mm -hmm. your negotiations. Um, and they'll take a cut uh, of, of all your paycheck and not do anything for you. So you have to have one-on-one -on -one conversations. Um, and, you know, uh, at some point, we'll also have to pony up some money to do some advertising as well to counter the, the, the deluge that will inevitably happen. But 
I don't know, Jillian, if you had any thoughts on that, this question, but. You know, it just like, it always reminds me of, um, of Sarah Palin, uh, talking about the death panels. Right. Like, remember yeah. the death panels? It was oh, like, they're alive and well, aren't they? <laughs> it's like, yeah. Okay. So if we have, if we have socialized medicine, God forbid, right. Everyone is going to be subject to death panels that are going to ration your healthcare. And I'm like, okay, actually that sounds very familiar. That's how my insurance company works. Right. right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Right. That, that actually tracks with my current experience of the healthcare. So I always do, I always think it's interesting how um, people, uh, conservatives can take flaws that are inherent to our system today and somehow project them onto Medicare for all. Right. And I, I would say in general to this question also that you don't want to spend all your messaging time responding to sort of wild and crazy uh, misrepresentations by our opposition, you know, um, <laughs> that's generally kind of a way to lose the messaging war, I think, to just be reactive. Um, you know, if we spend all our time saying, no, there's not death panels and, you know, <laughs> no, your, your care will not be rationed and no, this, look, we have an FAQ. We answer all 20 of these attacks. That's not, that's not really how you want to win the messaging wars. You want to, you know, frame it in the, in uh, the accurate, truthful way of what mm -hmm. Medicare for all does for you. Cause you, you can quickly kind of, allow your opposition to frame things in in a favorable way towards them if you just start being very reactive to everything so yeah yeah all right so jillian we have these last two questions and these are both kind of of a piece with each other so we're going to do a little <laughs> bit of blending together uh, but i really really love these two uh one is from katie worth who i think is from your uh, neck of the woods out there yes Corpus yes christy Katie Worth lives in Corpus Christi right now, um, but she is an award-winning journalist. She writes about climate science and climate denial and climate education. And uh, she is fucking awesome. And she lives in Corpus Christi. And um, yeah, so she had some... <laughs> It seems like all the women in my life had awkward Thanksgivings. Uh, yeah. so you want to <laughs> just read her question? <laughs> yes, absolutely. I will. And and actually, we had a both. We we had two questions that looked like they came out of Thanksgiving Day conversations <laughs> where Medicare for All came up. So Katie says we had dinner with our cousin's new boyfriend. I hope her cousin doesn't listen to the podcast. Because uh, shit's about to get real. We had dinner with our cousin's new boyfriend, and he brought up that the French eat so much better than Americans, all in caps, that they live three years longer than we do, even though we have the, quote, the best medical care in the world here, unquote. Uh, naturally, I launched into a heated lecture about how we actually don't have the best medical care in the world, except maybe for people who are extra rich. And in fact, our crappy medical system is likely to more to blame for our shorter lifespan than anything we eat. But his eyes glazed over immediately and he changed the subject as soon as he could. Do you have advice about how to respond to dumb bullshit in a way that won't alienate our cousin's new boyfriend? <laughs> I love the phrasing of that question. <laughs> oh God, I love you so much, yes. Katie. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think Jillian, we're gonna, we're gonna take the very first part of that question, which is the French live so much longer because they they eat so much better food really briefly. Yeah. And then we're going to merge her, her question about how do you talk to people who you strongly disagree with? Um, uh, and yeah. we're going to blend yeah. that in with the next question from the next uh, super fan who wrote in. Um, so <laughs> has some yes. OCD tendencies. So he was like, well, actually about the French. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> I I can't let that one pass. I can't Tell let us. it pass. Tell us so, about the French. All right, the French do live longer uh, than the United than people in the United States, but guess what? So does everyone in the developed world, and actually a lot of people in the developing world live much longer than us in the United States. Cubans live longer than we do in the United States, and it's a very poor country. It spends a fraction of what we do on healthcare. Anyway, long story short, it is not because the French eat better food, although they fucking do eat better food, and I really like butter. So I'm you highly, I'm like highly, highly eat. sympathetic to this line yeah. of thinking, even if it's wrong. I think you should basically pat your cousin's new boyfriend on the back saying, I'm glad you like French food because <laughs> French food is fucking awesome. Um, but sadly, there's a much worse reason that we don't live as long, and that is because the French don't kill as many of their babies as we do in the United States. That's uh, no. that's the that's the bluntest way I can put it. We have a very high infant mortality rate. And obviously when people are dying before they're one year old, that brings your life expectancy way, way, way down, especially in very large numbers. So infant mortality, part of that has to do with our healthcare system, you know, prenatal care, postnatal care, but actually it's probably a lot of the other things. And this is where I was gonna to go to your point where you were saying, you know, the medical care is probably living to our, leading to our short life expectancy. That's actually not the biggest cause of our short life expectancy or our shitty health outcomes. Uh, like we were just talking about before, a lot of it is the other much broader issues. And if you want to get an amazing, amazing book that's just a very easy read, I would read, it's called The Status Syndrome by Michael Marmot. And Michael Marmot was one of these authors who uh, wrote this really seminal research set of research papers back in the 1970s called The Whitehall Studies. And basically it was showing that most of our life expectancy outcomes and our health outcomes can be uh, boiled down to our own social status or kind of where we f find ourselves in the position of the social hierarchy around us, far more so than our access to healthcare, far more so than the food we eat, far more so than, you know, any of the other reasons that com people come up with to blame people for their own healthcare, especially anything that we have control over, whether that's food or drinking or anything else. That's a tiny, tiny, tiny portion of our health outcomes. So is the medical system. So although our, our medical system is shit here, so is our inequities, our social inequities and our economic inequities. We are yeah. much more inequitable country than almost all those other countries. So that's causing uh, the life expectancy gap along with our, our poor healthcare system. So anyway, I, it's, a, it's a really shocking read, including uh, where they discuss how actors who win the Oscars live four years longer than those who don't. Um, <laughs> I'm so sorry, it's not literally, funny. Your, your experience of like where you are in the social hierarchy impacts your life expectancy all the way up to the top. Even amongst wow. the rich people, it has a profound impact. It, all going all the way down, they call it sort of the social gradient. Um, so it's not just like you're working class and then you die young or you're rich and you get to live however long you want. Mm, um, even mm, among mm. the rich, among the middle class and among the poor, there's a gradient of health outcomes and life expectancy mm. um, based on where you land in the, the hierarchy of things. So so then like what you're saying is that like uh, those kind of inequalities like racism, class inequality, gender inequality, et cetera, et cetera, right? Those uh, forms of inequality influence people's health in ways that are like outside of the healthcare system, right? Like, like, exactly. uh, yep. access to food and resources, you know, uh, we know that like, you know, for example, the maternal and infant mortality rates in this country are so much higher for black people, right? And that has to do with all sorts of different things, including insurance and, you know, lack thereof, but also, you know, things like 
access to prenatal care and the fact that doctors don't take Black women's pain seriously and, you know, a myriad of other different kind of biases as well. Yeah. And a lot of, I think a lot of what they're describing in this, the status syndrome operates through stress, just that you're your stress levels have a lot to do with your how whether you feel like you have any control over your life, you know, and that just has profound impacts on all sorts of, of, of health outcomes in your life. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was the um, depressing part of the answer to unless you're an question. Oscar winner. Unless you're an Oscar winner. Uh, you know, the first thing that pumped into my mind was like, God bless Marissa Tomei. You know, like, I'm so glad she right. made that, 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 you know, best supporting actress Oscar might have like killed her career, but at least she's going to live longer, you know? Right. Which it may, it also makes Oscars so white much, much worse because you're literally <laughs> determining people's how long they live. So Oscars so old and white. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So, okay. But, you know, the, the kind of the, the more fun part of Katie's question was about how to talk about healthcare with people who might be a little bit more resistant. Or um, saying dumb bullshit in the words of Katie. Yeah, who are just you know, <laughs> speaking dumb bullshit. Um, <laughs> and this is something that obviously comes, you know, comes up at, around the holidays, right? Because mm -hmm. we get together with our, you know, relatives and stuff like that. I actually can remember one time I was working in an organization with Liam Meyer, uh, who mm -hmm. asked our first question about elder care. And Liam used to put together with talking points for Thanksgiving, Christmas, nice. and uh, nice. the Super Bowl. Um, <laughs> I love it. So that you could have conversations about healthcare with your relatives. So shout out to Liam. That was a good call. Anyway, so here, here we go. The second person who asked about who had an awkward Thanksgiving in my life was um, my very dear sister, who I mention all the time on the podcast, but she's awesome. And she is the uh, mother of my nephew, which is very important right now. <laughs> and she is, she's a nurse at Boston Healthcare for the Homeless. Um, so she awesome. is a nurse serving a houseless population. And she's just a fucking badass hero, you know, a healthcare. She's my healthcare hero. Damn it. Anyway, long story short, which way too late here. She says, over the holiday, my more moderate with age uncle-in-law. <laughs> I love that so phrasing. Gentle. <laughs> took the time to explain to me that while Medicare for all is great as a concept, it doesn't make sense with the current political infrastructure surrounding healthcare, so we should forget it as an idea. What are some good talking points to fire back with other than stop thinking like a boomer? <laughs> <laughs> she says, can you just... <laughs> <laughs> Can you please just prepare an arsenal for me to argue with my snake oil salesman? <laughs> Amazing. God. Again, I really love the women in my life. So, you know, there are a couple of different things there. One is that overall question. We'll get back to that of like talking to people and fighting with people. But the kind of root of the uncle-in-law's problem with Medicare for all is that it's not feasible, right? And I hate that argument so much because, you know, basically people have always said that like, anything cool that disrupts the status quo isn't feasible, right? Like this is like throughout history, there have been fucking trolls who have been like, eh, that's not really feasible. And so popular support for Medicare for all right now is around 69%. And that's more popular than the Civil Rights Act was in 1964. Around 61% people approved of, uh, you know, integrating, <laughs> integrating American society. That's not many. Yeah. Same-sex marriage in 2015 had about 60% public support. That's in 2015, y'all. 
and Medicare itself, right, back in 1964 when Medicare was first being debated, right, um, only about 61% uh, approved of it, right? But we won those things, even though people said, oh my God, these things are baked into our society. Uh, would, you know, the whole world will collapse if we, if we do any of those things. Now, people would be really hard pressed, I think, to say that uh, the Civil Rights Act or same-sex marriage or uh, Medicare destroyed our society. So, although actually plenty of people do say those things. Yeah. <laughs> um, but even for mainstream Republicans right now, for example, you know, they still, they defend Medicare, right? And they get touchy if you accuse them of trying to cut back on Medicare, right? And so basically, you know, there are all sorts of things uh, that haven't been feasible that have still happened because there was public support for them and because people organized around them. We can literally change anything about our government if we fucking do it. Yeah. And I, I just want to point out what a bad look it is to have been one of the people in 1964 who didn't oppose the Civil Rights Act, but thought it wasn't politically feasible enough to, mm -hmm. to, to, to so we should abandon the idea for it. Right. Yeah. Or one of the people who said, well, you know, I'm not opposed to women voting, but I just don't <laughs> think it's politically feasible. So, you know, or, you know, I'm not opposed to health care for seniors, but it's just not politically feasible. So, I mean, it doesn't age well, you know, to yeah, no. opposed to something for political feasibility grounds that touches at really uh, basic access yeah. to basic human rights and things that are kind of essential for human dignity, as we like to say. Mm -hmm. um, so I would really bring it back to the moral argument and and be like, look, you know, we need this. And my, my most hated thing is when legislators make this argument to when we meet with them and they're like, well, you know, I'm not opposed to this, but I don't. It's not politically feasible right now. It's like, motherfucker, you're the the people who decide what's politically feasible or not. You pass the laws, and it's not going to be politically feasible unless our legislators are advocating for it and our citizens are advocating for it. Yeah. So yeah, you're absolutely. you're part of the problem if you are the one crying political feasibility. So. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You are the problem, right? Like. Yeah, people always talk about like, what would you do if you had met Hitler in 1938 right. in Austria or whatever? It's like, okay, history is happening right now. Get on the fucking right side. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> I think also feasibility is like a relative concept and it's worth like pointing that out that like, for example, to people now who are literally dying because they don't have health insurance or dying because they can't afford a copay to go see a doctor, the current system is not particularly feasible. Generally, the people who label things feasible or unfeasible are people for whom the system is working already. And guess what? There are very few of them. But this leads us to our kind of general idea of like, you know, how do we actually fight with people who don't believe the way that we do? And I think we have some general tips, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we say this over and over again, but it's best to lead with stories. I'm sure your sister working at Healthcare for the Homeless has an endless number of stories and could just kind of lead with story base first. It's like, well, you know, we, we had someone yeah. come into the clinic the other day who was in this and this, this situation. How can we not fight for universal health care for, for this person? Mm -hmm. um, and it, it, te it, it lets people take off their ideology blinders a little bit sometimes if you talk about an individual case, um, whether it's your own or someone close to you or someone you're encountering in your work. So I, I would tend to do more story-based than coming up with an arsenal of stats to hit them back with. Generally, they're going to dig in their heels, probably, and yeah, yeah, land exactly where they started. So, so instead, you want to fill your arsenal with uh, 
you know, personal stories that are going to make them realize just how morally bankrupt they are. Right. You're giving the moral reason why it's important to you, not the yeah. not the clinical stats reason why it's important to you. But Yeah. And we talk about this all the time in our healthcare now, telling your healthcare story training, um, which is available to everyone. And you can always go to our website for more information about how you can sign up for that. But, you know, we, we talk about how <laughs> it actually the research and data shows that mm. research and data is not particularly, you know, uh, powerful in convincing people of right. things. So, yeah, yeah. As I'm going back on these two stories that uh, your sister and Katie told, I'm also realizing that they both involve mansplaining cases, which, um, <laughs> you know, yeah. I, if we had Medicare for all, we might have a cure for mansplaining by now. But sadly, <laughs> it goes undiagnosed often. It's allowed to spread in the population rampantly. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say my final point here is just, yeah, mansplaining. Oh, God, is there a cure for mansplaining? We will find it someday. I think it involves knives. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny because I was thinking guillotine, but right. it's like a different kind of knife. You and me, Ben. We're I'm right humanitarian. I would just stab them a little bit. Just a little bit. You know, thinking about like fighting and fighting fair always reminds me of one of the first healthcare protests that I went to and someone who's very close to me got into a fight with someone who was counter-protesting and eventually this counter-protester ended up saying, well, you know, everybody's gonna die, you know, this is socialized medicine or whatever. And <laughs> oh gosh, my my very good friend said, I hope your family dies first. <laughs> <laughs> now did he <laughs> goes goes over well at the Thanksgiving Thanksgiving yeah, table. Yeah. yeah, right. Did did he mean that? No, no. We Maybe. just get frustrated and we say mean things <laughs> in the moment. But just try to remember when you're representing the cause of Medicare for all mm -hmm. to try to take the high road. <laughs> We don't always succeed, but we aspire. Yeah. All right. So those are the best questions ever. Thank you, super fans. Really enjoyed that discussion. And I'm going to wrap this up by thanking our podcast team, our podcast manager, Angelique Davis, show notes writer, Jerry Katz, who was one of the folks who asked that question. Our audio editor for this episode is Arena Budanova. Don't forget to like this episode, subscribe to the Medicare for All podcast on whatever your favorite platform is. This show is a project of the Healthcare Now Education Fund. Mm -hmm. And a uh, special note at the very end here, if you want to support our work, you can donate on our website, healthcare-now.org. And because it is the end of your giving season, and thanks to a matching gift from the United Steelworkers Union, every dollar that you give right now is going to be doubled. And actually, if you sign up for a monthly donation, which is more affordable for some folks to give, you know, five, 10, $20 a month, um, that's actually going to be matched times 10. So if you you sign up for a $20 a month donation, it becomes a $200 one-time matching grant. Um, so please head over to the website and chip in while we still have this match running. So thank yes. you so much, everyone, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Stay safe and stay dangerous. Bye, y'all. 